Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. All right, let's jump to the book of Luke. We're walking through that. If you're new to our church, we've been walking through Luke. We're about, I think we're week 12 now, 12 weeks in, Luke chapter 5. We're going to jump in there. So, so, so far in this, in this book of Luke, Luke wants us to see that Jesus has arrived, that he's the promised Messiah that's promised from the Old Testament. And now as he starts showing us the ministry and life of Jesus, here is very intentionally what he wants us to see. It started a couple of weeks ago and will continue. And that is that Jesus, while he's on earth, has authority over all, over all things. And we're going to see today that Jesus has authority over what would be considered a miracle or a miracle. I always say miracle because I grew up in the, in the, in the sticks. Um, that, that Jesus steps into reality and something happens that normally would not happen. Now, in the ancient world and even the world that Jesus is alive in, um, miracles are like everything that happens is because they believe the gods allowed it to happen. That's the worldview of Jesus' day. So if it rains, like it did this morning, the gods allowed it to rain. If it doesn't rain, the gods were angry and it didn't rain. Everything was explained in the ancient world with the idea of supernatural. It's just that was the, the worldview. Well, now as people reading the story... We don't live in that worldview. We have a different worldview. It came with the 17th century, the scientific revolution, followed by the enlightenment of the 18th century. And what that brought, what that period of time brought, is the idea that everything, that all reality, must be discovered using scientific proof and logic. And that is what we have grown up in. So this morning when you looked out and it rained, your first thought was probably not, oh, God wanted it to rain. Your first thought was probably, well, my KY3 weather app told me that it was going to rain four days ago, and I know the models that, like, that's what goes through our mind, right? We have science, we have technology, and so this age of reason brought a denouncement of all that was superstitious, of all that was outside. So you and I have grown up in this understanding of physical science, of natural sciences, of technology, that everything that happens is because of a cause and effect relationship. And for us, as we approach some of these stories in the Bible that appear, if they're true, to exist outside of this reason and logic, it can be very difficult for us sometimes. Right? Because if, if our worldview is that the universe is a closed system of cause and effect relationships, then the idea of an outside force that could act on this in a way that doesn't make sense in this closed system, that can be hard to understand if this is our belief. Now, here's what I would argue. Modern science, logic, reason is insufficient and empty because ultimately it can only exist inside its reality. So trying to use science or logic to prove or disprove the existence of something in its nature that exists outside of science and logic, it's, it's foolish. And smart people have been doing it for hundreds and hundreds of years and arguing and trying to prove or disprove God within the constraints of logic, reason, science. And it will never do it. 
Like, how, how, many of you, uh, how many of you own a calculator that's not your iPhone? Anyone? Hey, so uh, a calculator works, the way I've been told, is you put in numbers, right? I spend my middle school years with it upside down trying to type in letters that would make words. Um, that you put in numbers and this calculator working in its design will compute very difficult numbers, arrangements and numbers to get you a accurate truth pattern of numbers will give you this answer, right? That's what a calculator is. So in, within its closed system, a calculator is very useful for that. So let's take a, let's take a, a surveyor, a land surveyor. You know, you see him on the side of the road, a little telescope looking thing. A land surveyor, surveyor may use a calculator to find out information they need to know, but here's what a calculator cannot do. On its own, a calculator cannot figure out the scope or the slant of the earth. That's why when you drive down the road and you see the guy on the side of the road, he's not punching in on a calculator. He's looking through a little telescope looking thing, which I had to Google this. It's called a theodolite. I even Googled how to say it, okay? It's a tool that measures horizontal and vertical angles. So a land server will look through that tool, get his information he needs, and then put it into the calculator to figure out what he wants. But here's what we understand. The calculator is limited to what it's designed to do. It's a closed system and it's limited to that. So if we want to understand this idea of miracles and God kind of working outside of this closed system, it's going to be difficult if we try to use science and logic to prove or disprove that because God and the idea of supernatural miracles exist out of this closed system. Here, here's a, a smart guy that's smarter than me said it this way and I thought it was good. Let me, let me read it. A miracle is not an interruption of an order. I'll explain this, but rather the interpretation of the true order, the order of the creator God into the demonic disorder of the present world. Now, let me stop. Here's what he's saying. When we see a miracle in the Bible, it is an interruption into the order that sin and death brought. So pre-fall, pre-Adam and Eve sinning, there is a perfect order to creation and it works as God has intended. Now, in light of sin and death, that has brought the present order, which is broken, right? And we all feel that brokenness. So a miracle is simply God interjecting into this system, the pre-fall system, bringing the true order into today. Or you could even say it, it's God taking what will be eternity, where he restores earth to its original glory, taking that future and bringing it into the order of sin and chaos today. That's what he says on that first part. He goes on, he says, it is an announcement that the true order is at hand, that ultimately power belongs to the God of creation, of true order, freedom, and justice. So every time we see a miracle in the Bible, it is God bringing in the true order of how he created things to be into the order of chaos and death that we live in. So the book of Luke is not just about proving that Jesus was God. Although Luke wants to say, like he wants us to see that Jesus is God. Luke is, wants to show us what happens when God takes on flesh and comes to this order of 
chaos and sin and brokenness, when he does that, he brings a true order that surrounds him and shows us what this God is really like. That's what Luke wants us to see. What happens when God invades this order of brokenness? But trying to use science and reason to explain these outside miracles, it will never make sense because science can't do that. It's a closed system. So I'm not one of those that walk around all day and every time I see someone sick, I'm just like, oh, boom, and you know, like hit them on the head and the power of God like knocks them down and they just start, what? That's not my reality. Kind of cool, but it's not my reality. And in my flesh, even if I'm transparent, reading some of these stories, I'm like, really? Because that's not the daily world that I live in. However, I will say there's been a few times in my life that I would say something happened that existed outside of this current reality of sin and brokenness. Let me give you an example. So several years ago, I'm in a church and there was a lady in our church, probably in her 50s, that started having headaches, went to the doctor and was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And uh, they, they did a, a scan, some type of scan, concluded that yes, we're like 99% sure it's a brain tumor, but I want you to come back next week and we're gonna do another test. We're gonna confirm this. We can decide the treatment. So she comes to church that Sunday and shares this and asks uh, for, for the, uh, some of the people of the church to gather around her and we're gonna read the scripture later, but pour oil on her head and ask for healing. And so there are about eight or 10, 12 of us that gathered around her. And the guy that kind of led that prayer, I'll just say he, he was a, he's a charismatic I mean, he's one of those that just like, by faith, I believe it's going to happen. And he always made me a little uncomfortable. But at the same time, I was always a little bit intrigued. And so he's leading this prayer and he's saying, in the name of Jesus, we're asking that you take this. I mean, just like full faith, this is going to happen. And I'm sitting here praying like, God, I don't know about this. Like, I know your Bible says to pray. I know we're supposed to ask, but I just doubt. And so I'm, I'm literally praying, God, if, if my lack of faith is going to disrupt this, I'm just like removing myself out of the situation. That's what I'm praying. So we pray for her. She goes to the doctor the next week, does a scan, and they say, um, there's no tumor whatsoever. We don't know what happened. Now, in my reason and logic brain, I'm trying to figure out, well, the first scan was wrong. Doctors made a mistake. Maybe the, the lady in the office misplaced the files. They looked at the wrong scan. Or maybe God broke into this present age and restored something to its original. How many of you listen? A lot of you listen. I know to Matt Chandler. Anyone listen to him? Village Church, several of you. Um, seven, eight years ago, gets diagnosed with a brain cancer. He's told you have two to three years to live, leading a, a big church in Texas. Um, he starts praying and asking and gathers people around him to pray and ask for God to heal him. Um, it was a death sentence. The, the type of cancer he, and I can't pronounce it, it's a big long name, it's a death sentence. Um, that was eight, nine years ago. He will probably be up there preaching this morning and doctors are saying there's no sign of cancer anywhere. What do we do with that? Again, the, the modern mind, well, we want to explain it away. But what we're going to be invited to as we look at some of these stories is to say, what if God 
in his sovereignty exist outside of science and outside of reason and outside of logic. As a matter of fact, if my little brain can kind of understand God, he might not be that big. What if God exists outside of that? So I would argue that science is not our most reliable source because it fails to take into account all circumstances. God. Now, and I'd argue science and reason fails to take in the human circumstance too. And if you're married, men, you know this. Science and reason and logic will tell you how to handle certain situations with your wife. But there's a little factor that's unknown, and that factor is called woman. Because it can work 10 times, and the 11th, boom, blows up, right? And science will not help you with that. Like the worst question for a husband, does this dress make me look fat? Because there is no good answer to that, right? You answer one way, oh, baby, no, it doesn't make you look fat. Oh, you're saying other clothes do? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it makes you look fat. I knew it. There's no good answer. Logic has yet to give us men an answer to that question. So as we jump into the story of, of miracles, may we think with this understanding, that yes, there is a system that plays it in our, in our world. It's a system that's pre-fall. The idea of a miracle is something outside of that system coming in and disrupting that. And as we have Jesus on the scene, it's not just a one-time disruption. It is God himself coming down and living in this disruption and bringing into this disruption the kingdom. That's the context. Let's go. Luke chapter 5, verse 12. Kind of a long introduction, but I felt we had to understand that before we jumped in. So Jesus, uh, he's, he's, he's called some disciples. Now he has an entourage around. He's got a posse around him. He, roll, he comes into a town and says, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, or if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, let's kind of understand this story. First of all, it's interesting what we see. This, this leper comes in contact with Jesus. And, and one of the things we'll see in Jesus, because we want to make Jesus a nice, long European with long hair, right? That's what every picture, like nice little soft Jesus. When people come into contact with Jesus, there's two opposite realities. Either the demons are like, oh my gosh, you're so holy, get away from me. Or people fall on their face and say, because I've seen who you are, I now see who I am. That's what happens when we come into contact with Jesus, right? In, in light of Jesus, my good becomes very bad. My knowledge becomes foolish in light of Jesus. In light of Jesus, my righteousness, my good works become insufficient. That's what happens when we get a right view of God. So even the reason this morning is we sing and we walk through some of the narratives that we walk through corporately. Why did we do that? Because that's not cool, right? It's, it's so much cooler in church now to, tend to have fog machines and lights and just rock your face off. Why do we do that? We want us to have a right view of God. We start with God's glory. We start with confessing our sin, then next confessing our sin. And then next reminding ourselves that Jesus on the cross paid for that. We want to have a right view of God because that causes a right view of self. That's what happened to this leper. And so what, so we understand this. This leper comes to Jesus. He falls down on his face and he begs him, if you are willing, make me clean. So let's understand this story. So if you're in this crowd right here and here's Jesus teaching, all of a sudden this leper comes up to him. There would have been a big <gasps> throughout the crowd. 
a gasp. Why? Because leprosy was not just this little disease that was bad if you caught and caused some itching or you might have a finger fall off or something like that. It was a curse. And one of the most feared diseases in that time was leprosy. Now, side note, leprosy is not just, when we think of leprosy, we think of that one disease where, where your body kind of rots away. Leprosy actually is a, is a term used in the Bible to talk about any type of skin disease. So it could be, we think of leprosy could be rashes and sometimes in, a, in the life of the Jews, even severe acne could be enough to count you as a leper. Now, if you were diagnosed as a leper, if you were called a leper, the worst part of the disease was not the physical ailment. The worst part of the disease was the social ramifications of that. You are now an outcast. So a doctor looks at you and says, you have leprosy. You are now cast out of your family. Remember, it's the ancient world. Everything that happens because of the gods. So somehow you sinned or you did evil and the gods are punishing you, you are outcast, you are spiritually unclean, you're not allowed to go into the temple, you're not allowed to worship God, you cannot be within six feet of any person because you are contagious and you are unclean and to get inside of a six foot boundary would make it punishable by death. When you entered into a place where there were people, here's what you would have to do if you're a leper, unclean, unclean, everywhere you went, and people would have walked around you. The common thing was where lepers entered a place, if they got too close, people would pick up rocks and drive them out. Lepers were outcast. And you were considered unclean until a priest could examine you, and then after a process, a procedure that took several days, could then pronounce you clean. And that is the man who comes to Jesus. And in the crowd, every one of us would have been like, oh, like, first of all, get away from me. And second of all, how could this man approach this guy who says he's from God? And look at the leper's question. He says to him, if you will, or if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this, this question or this statement is when he says, you can make me clean, we don't even really know what he's asking. Because, here's what I mean, is he asking like, you can heal me of my leprosy? Or is he simply asking, hey, you can, you can make me clean spiritually? And we don't, we don't really know, but somewhere in the, his question, he knows, he has this idea that Jesus is this person sent from God. He probably doesn't fully understand the Messiah part. And he falls down and he says, you can make me clean. Notice what the leper acknowledges, that, his, that him becoming clean is not up to himself. It's up to Jesus. Like this leper's probably tried everything. Right? He's went to Mama Jean's. He's got all the creams. He's got the, the herbal Chinese stuff that he's putting on. Like he has tried everything and nothing is working. So he acknowledges, Jesus, only you can make me clean. But he says, if you are willing. Which is an interesting question because Jesus is not always willing. 
sometimes we can just kind of assume that every time Jesus came across a sick person, he would just heal them. Well, that's not the case. Matter of fact, you'll find at the very end of the story, he heals and then all these people gather around with more healing. He's like, no, I've got to go over here. I've got something else to do. There are multiple times in the Bible that Jesus does not heal someone. And I've got to speak to this because if you're a thinker, right? If you're someone that thinks about things, we teach, we'll teach our children in our, in our kids' area. One of the truths we teach, God is in charge of everything, right? Well, if you're a thinker, here's the question. Okay, if God's in charge of everything, what is God's thought about this leper? If God's in charge of everything, what about the school shooting that just happened? God's in charge of everything. What about the child that gets diagnosed? Like if we're a thinker, we have to wrestle through these questions because in the heart of the leper's question, it says, if you are willing, meaning, Jesus, you have the authority. You can do it. The question, are you willing? So if God is in charge of everything, what about some of the stuff that we go through here on life? If we're thinkers, we have to go there. Now, there's kind of two ends of the spectrum, spectrum we could go, right? You have your, um, your, your word of faith, prosperity gospel people that says, hey, if you're sick, if something happens like that, all you need to do is have enough faith. And if you have enough faith, God must or God will heal you. No questions asked. And if you're not healed, it's because you do not have enough faith. We reject that. The opposite end is this super fundamental approach that says, well, God's in charge of everything and you just need to suck it up and deal with it. It's very cold, like hard theological understanding. Ugh. Well, here's what I might give to us this morning, that maybe it's somewhere in the middle. Here's what we believe. God does heal today. Now, sometimes that healing is through Medicine, that's a common grace of God that he gives us, right? Through doctors, through surgeries. Sometimes that's how God heals. We believe at Hill City that sometimes also God jumps in and heals in a way that's outside of medicine or surgery or reason or logic. Here's what James 5 says. If anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the power of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Here's what we see in the New Testament. We are invited as believers to pray by faith and ask God to heal outside of even what medicine can do. Like we're invited, if someone is sick, and if you're here this morning, we'll pray after, after this gathering. We're invited to come and lay hands on you and plead with God. God, will you please heal him? We beg you that you take this, that it's instant in a way that you get glory, that it's not like some medicine did it. We just pray that supernaturally, God, you jump in and you do it. We're invited to do that. But... Never do we say that and say, if we do that, God, you must act. So we acknowledge that God can heal, 
But here's what we also understand. God does not always heal. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians. To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, that's, that's all the knowledge that he was able to get from God to write, um, write the, much of the New Testament. To keep me from being conceited, a thorn was given me in, a, in the flesh. No one really knows what this is. Is this a sickness? Is this a struggle? We, we don't really know. A message of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. It's like I have this thorn in my flesh and it's there and I can see that it's given to me because I'm kind of in my flesh. I want to be like, look at my Paul, look how much knowledge I have. Look what he says. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. God, take this from me. Three times that it should leave me. But he said to me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your healing. No, 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 no. In your weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So what do we do with this? Here's what we do. We plead and pray for God to heal and we're invited to do so. We're, we beg we cry out, we read scripture, we pray, we lay hands, we believe. And then we, with open hands, trust that God is good and sovereign and his will and knowledge is even higher than ours. That's the invitation. And that's the invitation of this leper because sometimes Jesus heals, but Jesus and God are under no obligation to do so. And this is the hard truth that we, that Hill City, we must, we must grow in our theology because the dark day is coming. The dark night is coming for some of us. Some of us are a week away from getting a diagnosis that's going to rock our face off. And if we have this weak theology that either says, well, if I just have enough faith, God will heal me. And we don't get healed and we're like, oh, I don't have enough faith. Or we just have this cold God's like, you just got to deal with it. We're setting ourselves up for failure. We must understand who God is in light of this. And the truth is that sometimes God draws us into himself through healing us. And sometimes God draws us into himself by allowing pain and suffering in our lives. But that all of it, either way, is for our good. So if our top goal as believers is to glorify God, that all praise be to him and enjoy him forever, that the, the God in his knowledge might say the best way that you and I do that is not in our prosperity or not in our health, in our weakness. It's what Romans 8 says, and it's a verse that gets taken out of context all the time. We want to use it to say, yeah, God's going to make me rich. That's not true. And it's given in the context of suffering. Here's what it is, 826, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 26. It says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, in our brokenness, in our sin, in our, in our disease. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who, he who searches our hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Here we go, verse 28. And this is the one that's taken out of context all the time. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for 
good. Now, it doesn't say we know that for those who love God, prosperity works together for good. For those who love God, healing works together for good. No, what's it say? For those who love God, all things. You know what that includes? Sickness. Death. Cancer. Disaster. How do they work together for good? Verse 20, uh, end of 28, 29. And all things that work together for good. Sorry, verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Here we go. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to do what? To be conformed to the image of his son. So if God's goal for you as believers is to be conformed into the image of Christ, to, to live each day more and more like Christ, then God in his wisdom may use suffering in your life to get you there. Like God in his foreknowledge may know that if you don't go through some of this, you're going to come conceited and eventually say, I don't, I don't need God anyway. And the best, most loving thing he can do is say, no, you're going to go through this. I'll be with you through the entire thing. And in it, I will make you more like Christ. Now, here's what some of you are saying. I don't like that. I don't like that. If God is in charge of everything, and you tell me he's good, then Daniel, tell me how this happens. And then insert this. So several of us, a couple of years ago, got to walk through an awful situation with a young mother who we loved and cared for, had two little boys that got diagnosed with cancer. And we prayed for healing. And we begged God for healing. And she fought it for two, three years. And then we buried her. But for those of you that knew her, here's my question. Was there not a peace and a joy and a love for God that even through the midst of that situation just radiated from her. True? And did she not, in the midst of suffering, find joy and contentment in a way, in a, in a peace that surpasses all understanding of reason and logic? And for some of us that watch that, were we not spurred on to love God even more because of what she went through? And so we can ask the question, it's a good question to ask, well, how could God, if he's good, how, how does he allow a young mother to get diagnosed with cancer and waste away? How, how does he allow that? And the heart of our question, we have to understand this, because I know we've, we've asked that, we've all asked that. The heart of that question, there's a little flaw in that question, right? You guys know I love World War II history. I always I read about it, I've got to go to Germany a couple times and just and see some of these places. There's atrocious stories from World War II, Nazi Germany, where an armed guard would come and take a Jewish man and make him dig a grave. The whole time the Jewish man knows why he's digging that grave. When he gets his grave dug, the guy takes a revolver and the guy falls. And we want to know, where was God in that? 
if God's all-powerful, God could have just kept that finger from squeezing the trigger. But he allowed it. How could God be good? Here's the heart of the, this question, right? Why does God not stop evil? Because that's evil. Why does God not stop sickness when a, when a, when a mom gets diagnosed? Because that's evil. Well, here's the problem with this question. If we want God to stop evil, then guess who God also has to stop? You and me. You know why? I choose evil every day. So the heart of this question is we want God to intervene and step in on our idea of evil or our idea of what's bad. But ultimately we don't want that because if we do, then we're all toast because we're evil and God must stop us. And so we must as a church, and we're, we're two years old, we're still growing, we're still having opportunities to teach this stuff. We must grow in our understanding of the character and nature of God because life will come and life will happen. And it's in this humility and this faith, this leper approaches Jesus and he says, if you're willing, you can take this. Now verse 13. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, touched him saying, I will, or I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Now, Luke wants us to see a couple of things that are very important. Jesus stretched out his hand and what's the next word in your Bible? And all of us, come on touched. The first time that leper had probably been touched since he had been diagnosed. See, Jesus was this expression of love and grace and mercy that no one was anticipating. When this, when Jesus, first of all, you're already, you're already disgusted this leper came into your presence, but when Jesus reached out and touched, here's what all of us would have done. <gasps> you know why? Because Jesus, by touching him, has now, in our eyes, become unclean. This man is sick physically, and, we believe, and they believe sick spiritually. He's unclean. When Jesus touched him, Jesus has now become unclean himself, according to everyone in the crowd. So Jesus did not just, so the touch was not just about Jesus showing, showing compassion, although I think it was that. The touch was so much deeper. By touching him, Jesus took part in his shame. Because if something that's clean touches something that's unclean, the thing that touches it is now unclean itself. Right? So, so my dentist is here. If I go to the dentist this week and he walks in and he washes his hands, like, all right, hood, let's take a look. And then he's like, hold on a second, I gotta read. And he reached down his trash can to dig around a little bit. All right, so okay, let me look here. What am I gonna do? Stop. <laughs> Why? Because even though it washed, he was unclean. He touched the contaminant. Now he is unclean. I'm like, don't put, your, don't put your hands in my mouth. By touching the leper, Jesus has just taken the sin, the disease, the shame of this man and taken it upon himself. He becomes clean, or sorry, Jesus becomes dirty so the leper can become clean. That's the gospel. Religion would say, you gotta make yourself clean. Go get that herbal supplement. Go put the lotion on. Make yourself clean, and then you can approach Jesus. No, the gospel says this. In the midst of your brokenness, dirtiness, 
uncleanliness, Jesus came in and he touched you and said, I will take that and I will make you clean. It's the ministry of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So here's the gospel. This, this is called the doctrine of imputation, or, or, or the, here's this, that you and I are sinners, broken, lepers. Jesus took our sin upon himself. He became sin on the cross and in turn imputed to us his righteousness. Jesus was clean. He took our sin upon himself and imputed, gave to us his righteousness. Jesus didn't just die for sin. Jesus became sin. On the cross, Jesus became the murderer. On the cross, Jesus became the adulterer. On the cross, Jesus became the abuser. He took on sin. Galatians 3 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So when the leper says, you can make me clean, Jesus says, you're right, touches him and says, and, and in doing so says, you're right, I'm taking it and now you are clean. It's the work of Jesus in your life. Verse 14, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded you for a proof to them. This happens a lot. When Jesus heals someone, he does something, he'll tell them, don't tell anyone. And it's always, people are confused, like, why would he say that? Like, I thought he came to, to die for the world and do this thing. Yeah, he, it's called the messianic secret. When he says, don't tell someone, here is why. Jesus is not ready for his full identity to be known to all of the public yet. Because if that is known, here's what's going to happen. Tomorrow, going to be 10,000 people with all kinds of sickness coming to him. Heal me. And it's just a big magic show. Or if the leaders of Israel believe that he's the Messiah, they're going to try to force him into some military role to kick out the Romans and kind of take over the world. That's what they're wanting of the Messiah. So Jesus says, no, don't tell. It's not time yet. Verse 15. But now even more the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. So what happens? A leper goes out and is like, oh, he healed me. He doesn't listen to him. And so the next day, here comes the crowd. Look at verse 16. But Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. See, healing wasn't his primary responsibility. He was here to teach and train disciples and die for the sins of the world. It's interesting, the only person that didn't have a Messiah complex, I've got to fix everything, was the Messiah. That hits me a little bit. So it's interesting. There's been all kinds of earthly messiahs and prophets, self-proclaimed, like I'm sent from God. If, if, you're, if you're a little bit older, you remember Waco, Texas a few years ago. But here's the interesting thing about all these worldly prophets and people that say they're from God. All of them are about drawing a crowd to themselves. It's about recognition, fame, glory. Jesus is about the opposite. And when the crowds get bigger, he's like, okay, I'm, I'm going over here. 
at one point, the crowds get bigger and everyone's like, yeah, Jesus, we're for you. And he's like, yeah, if you don't drink my blood and eat my flesh, you can't be my disciple. They're like, man, this guy's crazy. We're out of here. Read it. It's in there. So this is the story of the leper. Jesus wants us to see, or, or Luke wants us to see that Jesus has authority over all. Now here's the question as readers, right? Now do we say, what do we do about this? Here's a flaw, I think, in interpretation. We read stories like this and we automatically say, okay, I want to be like Jesus and I need to go touch all the people that are unclean and, and sick and, and the homeless and I just need to go give them a big bear hug and love them. Okay, yes, you do. But here's what I challenge you. That's not the point of the story. And that's actually maybe a misinterpretation of the story because when we read this, where do we automatically want to put ourselves in the crowd watching this happen, right? You know who you are? The leper. That's who I am. We're not in the crowd, innocent bystanders watching this leper. Oh, that's so cute. You're the leper. We're unclean, we're dirty, we're broken, we're sinful. That's the narrative of humanity. But the gospel says in the midst of that, Jesus came in and he touched us. He took our sin upon himself on the cross and in turn gave us his righteousness. See, what you've just seen played out, this story is the gospel story. And first, may we see that we're the leper. May we understand that God came down in sovereignty. He didn't have to do it. Jesus never had to touch this guy, but he did. He touched us. He made us clean. And now, because of that, may we live as Jesus lived. Now, because Jesus has touched me and because I was a leper and I'm now cleansed, may I go out in this world and find other lepers and be like, listen, I'm just like you. I'm no different. I'm not any better. You're not more dirty than I am. But Jesus has come in and he's invaded my world in the midst of my brokenness. That's the message we take. And in a religious environment, here's the belief. Oh, all those sinners out there, got to stay away from them. They'll infect you. Got to keep ourselves separate from the world. Hate the sinner, you know, or hey, wait, hate the sin, love the sinner, all that stuff. Here's a gospel environment. We're the leper. We're the leper. On our own, we have nothing. Jesus saved us. Now may we go show that love to people we come in contact with. Not out of this position of authority. Yeah, we got our lives together. No, out of this posture of humility that says we are just like you. So the Bible is not a book about how to make yourself presentable to God. It's about God coming down and touching you and making you presentable to himself. So as we receive communion this morning, may we come as people who were formerly lepers, who were formerly cast out, who were formerly unclean, who formerly, if we're, we're going to approach God, would have to shout, unclean, unclean. And may we come as people that in the midst of our brokenness, Jesus came in and snatched us out of that, made us clean, took it upon himself, and we now have his righteousness. So we walk up this morning to the table with confidence not in ourselves, but in Christ. That's our confidence, that's our hope. So may your hearts be stirred this morning from the story, not for you, but for him. He's the hero. Let's pray.
God, may we have a right view of you this morning. May we see you for who you are as this holy, righteous God, and therefore may we have a correct view of ourselves. As people who are unclean, but then may we immediately go to the cross and say, no, we are no longer people who are unclean. We are people who have brought near and declared righteous by your blood. May that be our confidence this morning. And now in humility, may we go out and love people and show them and be a model of this love that has so impacted and revolutionized our life. May we live as you have lived. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.